0: bibles tonight second kings chapter 13 now well, this is next to the last lesson in the series second kings chapter number 13 we're going to be looking at verses 14 down through verse 19 so let's take the time to read this section and then we'll back up and comment second kings chapter 13 beginning in verse 14 now Elisha was fallen sick of his sickness, whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it, and Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it, and then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot, and he said, The arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou hast consumed them. And he said, Take the arrows, and he took them. And he said unto the king of Israel, Smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice, and stayed. And the man of God was wroth with him, and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times, then hadst thou smitten Syria, till thou had consumed it, whereas now thou shalt smite Syria but thrice. This story takes place as Elisha is on his deathbed, so to speak. And dear friends, whether we want to think about it or not, that's where we're all headed. You know, whenever we're young and we're strong, we're healthy, and um, we, we think we're going to live forever, uh, but uh, the years go by, the body weakens, reality begins to set in, and we begin to realize that we're going to die. That's an appointment that we all must keep. So we might as well face the reality of it and do what we can while we can. But now, now is Elisha's time to die. That shows us that even greatness cannot keep us from dying. Here was the, at that particular time, no doubt the greatest man in all of Israel. I guess you could say the greatest man in all of the world, looking at it from a spiritual standpoint, and yet he was going to die. You know, we would like to think a lot of times that our spirituality or our goodness, our righteousness, whatever you want to call it, is going to earn us some points with God and that he might exempt us from suffering and from sorrow and things like that. But uh, it is what it is in this world. Every one of us born with a sinful nature and although we're saved by the grace of God, our bodies are going to weaken and we're eventually going to die. That's just part of it. And that being the case, we have no reason to complain about it. Now, certainly, certainly we can express our feelings in regards to, you know, our suffering and our pain and so forth. But to think that God would exempt us because of some, you know, something good about us is simply a pipe dream. And so uh, here is Elisha on his sick bed, And from this From this short story, I think there's some important lessons that we can learn. Notice how it begins with consternation. Uh, uh, There's confusion here, especially on the part of the king. I think that Elisha perfectly understood what was going on. But notice verse 14 again. And Elisha was fallen sick of the sickness whereof he died. And Joash, the king of Israel, came down unto him and and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Now, in the first place, it really seems strange that the king of Israel would come to Elisha at a time like this or any time, and especially notice with tears in his eyes. There's a lot of speculation among preachers as to what was going on here, trying to, you know, give an explanation for uh, what this was all about. Some have suggested that he truly cared about Elisha. Uh, Well, I've got my doubts about that, just how much he cared about Elisha. Uh, Secondly, there is the suggestion that he was worried uh, about himself, wondering what is going to happen to the nation after the prophet is gone. And and, uh, so that that might be legitimate because he knows that the people has been, been depending upon Elisha and his messages from god for the for their direction and now he's about to be taken and evidently even with those schools of young preachers there seems to be nobody that he has any confidence in that's going to step up and you know take up the slack and carry on the work and so in his mind evidently everything kind of depends upon uh, upon the presence of this prophet and in, in, in doing that, he misunderstands Elisha's uh, importance or the part that he played. If that was the case, evidently he looked upon him as the sole protector and the preserver of Israel, and I guess you could say he was trusting in the prophet of God instead of the God of the prophet, yeah. you see, and I, I think that's that's what's going on. I, He's wringing his hands. What in the world are we going to do now? Well, certainly we know that in those days that the prophets and today that uh, preachers, uh, uh, there's a lot that depend upon them. But it's 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 possible for us to put too much trust in them. So many times we uh, we you know we we think about. Uh, uh, Maybe some particular church and and the and the pastor and the situation and what's going to happen you know if he dies or what's going to happen if he leaves and and so forth and the fact of the matter God is God where you know regardless of what the situation is we sometimes think about our nation and think about you know and and, and by the way I don't need to tell you our nation is in in trouble. I mean, we've got some severe problems. But we have a God that's bigger than those problems. But we, you know, we have it in our mind that if, if, if we don't get a particular party or a particular person elected to office, you know, it's all over. Well, we discount God whenever we do that. Now, certainly it might be we get the wrong people in the wrong place that we can go through some extremely difficult times. But the fact of the matter is, sometimes in order to get where we need to be, we have to go through those difficult times. That was a pattern with the nation of Israel and over and over and over and over again. They did the same thing, and that is that, you know, when they turned to God, they were blessed of the Lord And in the midst of all of their blessings, living in the lap of luxury, so to speak, that's when they deserted the Lord. And consequently, what happened? Well, God sent judgment upon them. They were taken into captivity by some heathen nation. In other words, they had in some way suffer the consequences of their sin before they would return to their spiritual sanity. And That's what we see going on in America. Now, I mention all of that because of the fact that whether it's your family or this church or whether it's our nation, whatever the case is, our security, our safety depends upon our relationship with God. You know, not upon some messenger or some man or some elected official. It depends upon our relationship with God himself. He is the only one that's able to provide what we need. But here we find the confusion in regards to this because it's like the king is saying, what in the world are we going to do? Well, verse 15, 16, and 17, we see the council. He says in verse 15, Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows, and he took them, we read that a few moments ago, and he put his hands upon the king's hands. They shot out the window. Uh, didn't shoot out the window. They shot through the window, through the opening. And uh, it, it was uh, it was uh, a, a display, if you please. It was uh, uh, kind of like, you know, we use flannel graphs as object lessons. And I think that's what this was. He told him, then, take the arrows and smite the ground. And so the king took the arrows, and one, two, three times he smote upon the ground. And uh, that was the counsel that was given. The first thing that came to my mind when I think about this is that it's sort of amazing to me that Elisha is willing to minister to the king at a time like this. He's dying. He, He certainly doesn't feel good. He's sick. He's dying and the king comes to him with tears in his eyes, wondering what in the world they're going to do. And, and I, I got to tell you, and especially with the relationship that existed between the prophet and the kings of that day, I've, I've got to wonder why Elisha would have even been concerned about uh, about a conversation with him at that point. Elisha when others would have been thinking only about themselves Elisha was thinking about others and let's face it there are times that whenever we are ailing physically or we are distraught emotionally there are times that we just don't feel like ministering to other people you know we turn our attention inward that that's just normal. Uh, You could say that's a part of the survival instinct that God has given us, that whenever something is wrong, if there's a pain or whatever it is, that we start thinking about that, what might be causing it, how we can fix it, and so forth. But here is a man that is suffering, he is sick, he is about ready to die, and he never, evidently, never lost his desire to help others. He's thinking not only about the king, he's thinking about the nation as a whole. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we can all come down to the end of our life, however that shall be. We come down to the end of our life and have that same attitude that I'm more concerned about ministering to others in the time that I have left than I am about finding comfort for myself. And that's what I see here with Elisha. He never lost that desire. He could have said, look, I'm not taking any visitors today. I don't care if you're the king or who you are. I don't feel like entertaining guests. I'll just stay out of my room. Uh, but Elisha was different. He wanted to do what was right while he could. Now, we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is the purpose of all of this? Um I'll just try to sum it up in a few words, and I'm not sure that I know everything about it. But I think that Elisha is trying to teach the king a lesson in personal responsibility. Uh, Whenever it comes to this matter of achieving victory, we know that that, that they are going to be at war with the Syrians. We know that there's going to be a conflict, and and he is demonstrating the fact here that God can give them the victory, but it requires effort. Having a, the bow and the arrow does no good if you don't shoot the arrow, right? It doesn't do any good if you don't put forth any effort. You know, I think that's what's going on. So he counsels him to do this, But then look at verse 18. Here we find a command where he says, Take the arrows, and he took them, and he said unto the king, Smite them upon the ground, and he smote thrice, and he stayed. Now notice the requirement here. Remember, arrows are a symbol of war. And and here we see that the measure of his faith is manifested by the measure of his smiting. He's demonstrating how much faith he has evidently in the number of times that he smites the ground with the arrows and his attitude toward Israel. Remember, as the king, he is to be their protector. He is the one to have their welfare at heart. And so the king or the prophet tells him to smite the ground and it's tap, tap, tap. Only one word for that, a hyphenated word, half-heartedness. That's all you can make out of that. Evidently, he did what he did just to satisfy the whims of the old prophet. In other words, I think he's saying, well, if you insist, I'll do it. But his heart really wasn't in it. If you insist, I'll do it. In other words, I'm willing to go through the motions, but I'm not willing to put forth any great efforts he would have really done well had he listened to what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9:10 whatsoever thy hand findeth to do do it with all thy might paul said basically the same thing in colossians chapter 3 verse 23 and whatsoever ye do do it heartily as to the lord and not unto men Amen. i remember my pastor the only pastor i ever had and i told this many times before but he would talk about something like this and being the best that you could be at whatever you whatever you did for the lord and i can still see him get his hanky out and we had those that old style paneling on the walls that nobody likes anymore but us hillbillies i still like it but uh, anyway he'd take that and he said if god called me to be a knot hole polisher and he'd just start down the wall, and he'd polish some knot holes there. I'd be the best knot hole polisher I possibly could. I read something years ago, and I jotted it down, and I can't remember who who wrote it or who said it, but the quote is this. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as michelangelo painted or beethoven composed music or shakespeare wrote poetry he should sweep streets so well that the host of heaven will pause to say here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well boy if we would all just have that attitude about whatever it is that we do you know whether it's singing in the choir whether it's working in the sound room regardless of what it is if we had that attitude that I'm doing this for the Lord, makes no difference if I get any praise from somebody else. That's not my purpose. I'm doing this for the glory of God, and I'm going to do the very best that I possibly can. That's the way that it, that it ought to be. You know, if there's anything, I think, killing churches today, it's the fact that most people... Are, are just half heartedly going through the motions. In other words, they just do enough to get by. And very seldom do you find someone that is so totally dedicated to their duty that I mean that they do what they do with enthusiasm, they do it cheerfully, they discharge their duty, you know, the very best they possibly can. You know, when the Lord talked about going the extra mile, that was a very important principle there because so many times we just go as far as we have to go. We go far enough, you know, in our mind to to retain our respectability, but we're not willing to go the second mile. And as I've often said, you know, the person that just goes the one mile is not going, to, not going to be any more rewarded than the person that doesn't go at all. But, but, are you with me? Maybe you don't agree. I, I don't know. But if the Lord commanded us to go two miles and we go one mile, that's disobedient, just as the fellow that says, I ain't going nowhere. You see, we have a responsibility to do our best. God demands our best. God deserves our best. Amen. And we need to give him our very best. We think about Christians, and of all people on earth, we ought to be the most enthusiastic whenever it comes to discharging our duties. So, you know, going back to the matter of politics just a little bit, and I apologize for that, but we look at the situation that we're in today and all of those that are doing things that, that is destructive to our form of government that is costing us our freedom. And and we think about those people. Let me tell you one thing that you you have to agree, they're all in when it comes to promoting their nonsense. I mean, they're out in the streets and they're vocal. They don't shut up. They keep hammering away. I remember when a group of us pastors uh, nearly 50 years ago, In fact, just about 50 years ago, I guess now. And I can remember whenever we organized together in trying to stop sex education in the schools. And there for about a year, I mean, boy, we had a movement going. Everybody was against it. We were preaching against it. We were organizing meetings and going to the school boards and stuff like that and expressing our concern about that. But, you know, after a while, it just died out. You know, well, the sad thing is the opposition, they just keep going. They put us to shame when it comes to the matter of enthusiasm. And if anybody on earth ought to be enthused about what God has called us to do, it's us. I, I just can't help but to see that old king take those arrows and kind of wonder what in the world is this all about? Has he lost his mind and tap, tap, tap three times. What a sad picture that is. You know, you would have thought that if this was in any way representative of the conflict with Syria and, and, and in any way a demonstration of his faith and an expression of his hope that they were going to win the battle, he would have broken those things to smithereens. But he didn't. And notice the censure that is raised here in verse number 19. This is this is the response from Elisha as to that half-heartedness. And the man of God was wroth. That means he was mad as an old wet hen. The man of God was wroth with him and said, Thou shouldest have smitten five or six times. You should have done twice as much as what you did. Thou hadst then thou hadst smitten Syria, notice, notice, till thou had consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite Syria, but thrice. Now there's two two things here at least. There's the rebuke that I'll talk about in just a minute. But first of all, there's the expression of regret on the part of Elisha, and. Uh, I think we ought to always regret the failure that relates to important issues, instead of just shrugging our shoulders. Oh well, you know they won. You know they won this time. Maybe we'll win next time, and you, you know we, we we just dismiss it like it's no big deal. We we dismiss failure with with an I don't care attitude when we ought to be troubled when other people are adversely affected. Remember, the nation is at stake here. And this king is their leader, the one that they're depending upon. So there is regret on the the part of the prophet. But he doesn't just stop there. After the regret, notice there is a rebuke as he tells him what he should have done. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 3.7, There is a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Well this was the time to speak and Elisha did. You know, he could have just thought to himself, Now look, this is the king. I've got to be careful about what I say. I I don't want to offend him. I might even die before I'm sick enough to die or you know, whatever. And, or he could have said, it really is not going to make any difference. He's not going to listen to me anyway. He never has. He never will. And so there's no need in me saying anything. But he understands this is a time to speak out. And, and this was the wrong time for him to remain silent. He sees the condition of the nation and he took action. And whenever we think about the condition of our nation or the needs of our church or with the situation in our families and what have you, there's a time to speak out. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about rioting in the streets. I'm not talking about rude speech. I'm talking about speaking the truth in love. We don't have to make a fool of ourselves like our opponents do, those that are promoting sinful things. We don't have to, you know, follow their, their example, but we can certainly speak the truth in love. We can raise our voice and let it be known, thus saith the Lord. And, and look, if, if we hope to, to come out on top in this battle, that's exactly what we've got to do. We just can't sit back and remain silent. I, I have a dear preacher friend, and uh, I shouldn't get off into this, but uh, he he is so adamantly opposed to what we refer to as nationalism. Uh, now, on the other hand, I I don't have any trouble at all singing I'm proud to be an American. I really am. America is not what it used to be. It's not what it ought to be. Whenever I say I'm proud to be an American, I'm talking about being a part of the nation that was founded upon principles based upon the Bible. And not only that, but a nation that not only affords us the freedom to worship, but a nation that has been the most generous nation to the world above head and shoulders above any other nation. And and I see all of that as a sign of God's blessings How can I not be proud of the country? Amen. How can I not be willing to stand up and fight for those things that are are opposed to our country? You know, some people listen to me and they think we had a family leave the church uh, four or five years ago. and, And I know exactly what it was all about. They didn't agree with me about politics and they thought I got too political and what have you. And somebody might assume, you know, boy... He he's sure into politics. No, I'm not into politics. I hate politics. I, I, as I told somebody this morning, we was talking about something. I hate politics. I hate religion. Those are the two two main things that I hate above everything else: politics and religion. But l- let me tell you, I'm I, I, I don't hate politicians. There's a difference. I hate politics. I hate that which which desires to pull down this nation and destroy what God has given us. I, I hate that. And we have an obligation to speak out, to speak the truth. And if we expect our children and our grandchildren to enjoy the blessings that we've enjoyed, somebody's got to stand in the gap. Somebody's got to fight the battle. Somebody's got to have the courage to stand up and speak out. And so here is a man on his deathbed letting this king know, buddy, you've got the wrong attitude about this. You should have smitten the ground at least five or six times. Now looking at this little short story we come down to the conclusion and, 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 and as we do the lesson that I think at least one of the lessons that we learn is that failure needs to be analyzed and in this particular case we have to ask ourselves why was it that, that Joash failed? It's not always easy trying to figure out what seems to be failure on a part of another person because we don't walk in their shoes. We don't know the facts. And we look at someone and we, and we see something that is a failure on their part. And we rush to judgment as to what it was all about. But, but sometimes, sometimes things are not what they seem to be. And we've got to be really careful in sitting in judgment of other people and accusing them of being a failure when they not. Because listen, they might have failed, but failing doesn't make you a failure. We all fail in some way. But regardless of the cause or anything else, the fact of the matter is it boils down to him having a lack of faith. And and it seems to me that he is afraid to just outright disobey the prophet you know, the prophet said, you know, smite the ground. And so he doesn't just totally disobey him, but he's also afraid to face the challenge that lay before him. And maybe, maybe, just maybe he was thinking, you know, if we really try hard, I think we can we can beat the enemy back, you know, maybe two or three times. So tap, tap, tap. That was the measure of his faith, you know. But his actions revealed his lack of faith and his unbelief that limits what God can do. Psalm 78 makes that clear. They limited the Holy One of Israel. Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. And his lack of faith led to foolishness here because when he should have kept it up, he just... He just stopped. Notice that Elisha did not tell him, I want you to smite the ground six times. He didn't give him a number. He didn't say, I want you to do it ten times. He just said, take the arrow, smite the ground. Because as you smite the ground, you know, that's picturing you smiting the Syrians. And he went tap, tap, tap. You see... Nobody tells him how many times to do it and it's kind of the same way with us it's left up to us God doesn't God doesn't ring your alarm clock at a certain time on Sunday morning saying get out of bed God doesn't send an angel to take you by the arm and lead you to church he leaves that up to you believe it or not that's a decision that he wants you to make And it's only as we do our very best that we can expect God to do what we can't do. And here, everybody knew that that there was an impending war. There was going to be a battle. There was going to be the strife and the conflict. Everybody knew that. And, And other people are affected by whatever we do or whatever we don't do. Remember, keep that in mind. The nation is at stake. And and so the, so the prophet told him, look, you should have smoked the ground at least five or six times, and I think it's significant that whenever he smoked the ground three times, he felt, I'm fulfilling my obligation. I'm doing no more or no less than what, you know, was asked of me or expected of me. But notice... The prophet said you should have smote it five or six times. You should have done twice as much as what you did. Boy, when you think about Elisha, you know, there's absolutely no way for us to, to even begin to measure the greatness of that man. And, and, and so far we've been looking at it in regards to his relationship with the king, we've been looking at it in regards to what this meant for the nation. But there's one more thing that we've not even mentioned that is more important than all of it, and that is the fact that if we are concerned about the glory of God we should be, like we should be, we'll do our best to honor his name Remember, if Israel suffers defeat, God is dishonored. Think about that. This was a big deal in the eyes of the world looking on. When Israel went into battle, and believe me, over and over again, we find examples of the heathen nations mocking the people of God. Now, where is your God now? Yeah, yeah. You've been talking about how great your God is. Where is he now? Why doesn't he help you? So you see, folks, it's not all about you. It's not all about me. Least of all, you know, it's not about us. It's all about God. A person living a dedicated, faithful life to the Lord, you know, and you know we would say that is commendable we would say they deserve a pat on the back indeed they do but their reward is in heaven and the greater glory ought to go to god to think about how god took a vile worthless sinner and god not only saved that person but transformed that person and made that person into a vessel that's fit for the master's use And you see, that's what it's all about. That's why Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He understood. I don't have anything to brag about. It's all because of Jesus. And that's the way that we all ought to feel and we all should do everything in our power to defeat that attitude of half-heartedness. And we ought to be wholeheartedly devoted to the cause of Christ because it's for our good and most of all, it's for His glory. So, so, don't let Satan don't let Satan win the battle in your life. Do all you do for the glory of God, and you won't regret it. Well, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise next week. We're going to wrap up this study, but we're going to close right there where we're at tonight, and leave here. I hope wholeheartedly determined to do our very best. For the Lord let's all stand we're going to sing a verse of invitation I, I don't know who God might be speaking to or what God might be speaking to someone about it might be that you're here tonight and you you've never been saved I, I, I don't know but as I said this morning you can be sure of one thing there's nobody here that God doesn't care about Regardless of who you are or what you've done, God cares about you. He cares enough that He gave His very best, His very own Son, who died on the cross that you might be saved. And we beg you here tonight, please trust Him before it's too late. Would you do that while we sing? It's 300.